In 2012, I went on a torture tour to Africa. Um, one of my friends, Michelle Latar, she's also a pastor. Many of you know her. Uh, we are colleagues at Bentry, and we were invited by alarm to go visit um, five of their countries in 12 days. We took 23 flights in 12 days. That's in-country and international. So if I've looked like I've aged a little bit, I think it really was from that trip in 2012. But um, we split up on one day, and one day Michelle went to a place about 30 miles away or 30 kilometers away from Goma, uh, which is on the eastern side of the Congo, and she went to a place called Kibumba. And it's a very rural place, and she was there to encourage pastors. So she went and um, she met these pastors, probably 25 of them walking from the bush, coming from all different directions. I, I wish I had her picture. She was trying to find them for me. They were dressed in their suits. They're dirty, patched, frayed, ragged suits with their best shoes that had holes or the flip-flops that were wired together or bare feet. And they gathered in a dirt floor church. None of them had a Bible. None of them had ever received a lick of training. But God had called them to pastor over 30,000 people in this area, 6,000 families. And, and these men came to be encouraged, some for the first time ever in their lives, with the word of God. And as they danced and they wept and they prayed and they sang and they talked with one another and prayed for one another, Michelle's heart was wrecked for those pastors. And she came back and told me the story and showed me the pictures. And Bentree is in Kabumba today. With Water is Basic, we've provided Sawyer water filters for all 6,000 of those families in Kabumba so they can have fresh, clean water. But we are there today because Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, wrecked Michelle's heart. That's why we're there. On that same day, I was deployed somewhere else. And as I was going towards this prison, I was going to speak in a prison designed to hold 600 inmates and 1,500 were in there. It was a men's prison. I was going in there to share the gospel. And on the way... I'm quiet in the van, and I'm just looking out. If you've ever been to Africa, don't bother taking your camera. Take pictures with your eyes and see people. <laughs> so I was looking out the window of the van on the way to the prison, and I saw a woman. She was dragging her legs. She was propelling herself on her arms down the street. And if you know anything about Goma, it's volcanic rock most places, so it's not a smooth pavement. She's walking with her hands and arms down the street with a baby strapped to her back. That was the day that God wrecked me for Congo. And I came back, and after hearing about the pastors, I got to tell Michelle what I saw, and then the prison. That's a whole different sermon. I got to bring that to you next time. But my heart was wrecked for the Congo, and we are in the Congo today with the Women's Leadership Training Institute with IBC as a partner. We are there today because God wrecked my heart for Congolese women. Have you ever experienced that? Where God, like, he, I've never had a baby. I've been single all my life, never married. But I understand the anguished cries of women giving birth. 
Most of my friends have had babies. Most of you in this room have had babies. You understand what it is to feel that pain from the deepest part of who you are. That's what this is like when God breaks you, wrecks you, ruins you for something. Have you experienced that? What does it mean for our hearts to be wrecked? You know it's biblical. A wrecked heart is a biblical concept. The word in the Greek is splanknon. Splanknon. God wants to splanknonizomai you. So he wants to splanknon. It's this idea of the bowels of you, the innermost being, your heart, your kidney, your liver, what the ancients used to think was the seat of who you are. It's when the Holy Spirit comes to that place deep inside you and he births something in you, a compassion so deep that it changes you and it it compels you to act. That's biblical splanknon. That's what it means to have your heart ruined. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, mostly of Jesus. And oddly enough, it's connected to sight, to seeing something, and then being moved, splanknon, with compassion and pity and a desire to move forward in action. You'll remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the guy was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was beaten up by robbers on the road and he was stripped half naked and he was left on the road to die. And the Levite, this religious Jew walks by and a rabbi walks by or a priest walks by and they just walk on the other side of the road. They do nothing. But then this little Samaritan, this Good Samaritan, the people the Jews hated and had no time for, he comes by and this is what it says in verse 13 of Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 33 of Luke chapter 10. But a Samaritan, such important words, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity, splanknon, on him. There's a good Samaritan bebopping down the road, minding his own business like Samaritans do. And he sees the guy in the ditch. He sees the pastor with no shoes. He sees the woman dragging herself on the road with a baby strapped on her back. And that seeing, that pity, that compassion, that splanknon makes this guy take money out of his pocket, get this guy to a holiday inn and say, I'll pay whatever it costs to take care of him and I will come back to find him after having poured precious oil into his wounds to help him. Splanknon, this deep, deep pity. But you know when I ask women, can women come to my office or I talk to families as they are interacting with me, especially as missions pastor, I did that for 11 years and I talked to people and many, many, many people never have had this experience, never have experienced that deep compassion that scripture talks about. And they feel bad about it. And I'm puzzled in my mind as to why. Why don't we all feel that urge within us, that birthing of a compassion in us? Why is that? And I think it's because we are bombarded today by the images of the media. We see a crisis a week. Anybody remember Hurricane Matthew? 
That was just a week ago. Have you forgotten it already? Oh, yeah, Hurricane Matthew. I remember him. He, like, devastated thousands of people in South Carolina. I remember that. I, I, everything happens so fast. You have it now in the palm of your hand. At least back in Jesus' day, they had to walk 25 miles to get a splankton on. You, I mean, you can hardly avoid seeing the crises right in your hand with your phone. And it seems like there's one a minute. Doesn't it feel like that? Like you're overwhelmed. So I did a little research. See if you remember any of these. Maybe you'll remember one. I remembered one of these. And they'll do it in 2016 when the uh, year is over. But they, World Relief does a review of the top crises, humanitarian crises in the world. See if you remember any of these from 2015. I was shocked at how many I did not remember. Here's the first one. 4.4 million Syrian refugees displaced. Remember that? Okay, we know that. That's ongoing. That's good. That's one. The Nepal earthquake. Anybody remember that? Wow, you are spiritual. I, I must really be bad because I'm like, I forgot that Nepal earthquake. You know, um, 7.8 on the Richter scale, 8,000 people dead. So many villages decimated. I've been to Nepal. I can picture it. I'd forgotten it. The West Africa Ebola outbreak. This is the one I remembered. 11,000 people died in West Africa. South Sudan, you have a heart for South Sudan like we do. Do you know that with the war, 1.6 million people have been displaced? It is now the most difficult place to live in the world. It even is worse than Congo at this time. Here's one I didn't remember, the Somalia drought. One million people displaced and needing food assistance. And then the Central American drought, I didn't even know this happened. 3.5 million people affected across El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua. Those are just like the top six. And every day there's more. Add terrorist attacks to that. If you just listed the terrorist attacks in one year, it would stun you. Humanitarian crisis, terrorist attacks, political crises. Are, are, have you turned off CNN by now? We're 20 days out, right? I, I almost cannot listen to the news. It's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Feeling compassion turns into feeling overwhelmed. Is that how it feels to you? Like, I really want to be compassionate, Joanne, but I just feel overwhelmed by it all. I cannot take it all in. I don't even know where to be compassionate. I don't even know where to feel it because if I'm compassionate here, then next week it's going to be compassionate somewhere else. And I, I don't know how I can be that compassionate. I'm with you, sister. I'm so with you. But here's the real reason I think it's hard for Splanknon to happen to us. Because in our age of media overload, seeing people has become watching people. Have you noticed the switch in your mind, in your heart? More and more and more, and the generations coming up under us are watching the world instead of seeing people. More and more distant, the closer the phone gets to your face, the more distant the compassion gets. Isn't that an odd thing? We watch the world in pain, and we are not seeing people. It's so hard, guys. It's so hard. 
And there is a danger when Christians move from an active um, heart set, an active, I want to act compassionately, when we move from there to this passivity that we see in our culture today, where we sit back and consume and we're not engaged in Jesus through us into the world, thank God you have your blessed 2021 where you're, you're actually thinking about my refuge house and other places, but many people are not even in that spot. They're sitting back with arms folded and watching. And it's a dangerous place when the church becomes passive, not active. We need to be Splank nidzomide. <laughs> Say that with me. Splank nidzomide. That is such an assassination of Greek. So let me just say, Alice is turning over in her grave at this moment. I don't know, but, um, but bear with me. That splanknon, that thing that moves people to compassion, that we'll see in this text in a moment as we watch Jesus work through this in his own life in a small episode from Luke chapter seven. That's the hope. Christ's compassion through us. You see, you don't have to work up your own compassion. You don't have to have the long lasting compassion that is your brand of it. Jesus resides in us by his Holy Spirit and his life, his splanknon is enough to give birth to the compassion we need for the things that he calls us and the people he calls us to. He's enough. And we're gonna see in a moment how that plays out in his life. So turn with me to Luke chapter seven, and we're gonna focus on a little widow lady. And uh, we're gonna pick it up in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. You know that Jesus has just, um, he just preached that sermon on the plain. You heard that last week when Sue was talking about the sermon on the plain. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. And if you or I were at the height of our popularity, this is Luke chapter seven, verse 13. We'll get there in a second. We, we, you would lean into that popularity. You know, you and I would just humanly, we'd lean into that popularity. And we'd go to all the best places. We'd make the Jesus t-shirts. You know, we'd do the Jesus decoder ring. You, you, you would, you would you'd lean into the fame, wouldn't you? I mean, I think humanly speaking, we probably would lean into it. And Jesus does the exact opposite. He goes right to the marginalized people. He goes right to the marginalized people. Look at the hit list of people he visits in Luke chapter 7. He visits a leper. He visits a Gentile. He talks to a widow, a prisoner, and a prostitute. That is not fame-making material, folks. <laughs> At the height of his popularity, Jesus is compelled by the Spirit to go to the fringes of society and interact with people. Why? Splanknon. Good old Splanknon. So we'll talk about the widow. Verse 11, it says, soon afterward, this is probably a day after the centurion, the Gentile, uh, his servant is healed. Jesus went to a town called Nain. This is a day's walk, about 25 miles, 20 to 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It's very close to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. So maybe he was wanting to kind of be back in his own territory. He went to a town called Nain and his 12 disciples and a large crowd went along with him. 
So his 12 disciples are with him, but there's a large crowd following him because he's at the height of his popularity. He's famous. Being with Jesus is the cool thing. I want to walk with him. You and I would want that. We want to be in the, like, okay, Jesus, selfie. Everybody that's traveling with Jesus. And you'd, you know, move your way like I would to the front, you know, and, you know, here I am with, hey, Jesus, you know. We would do that. This was the cool thing to do. Lots of people were traveling with Jesus. I I bet they were wondering, where in the world is he going? Verse 12, as he approached the town gate of Nain, this is probably the main entrance to the city. Um, Scholars tell us it was a steep uphill climb. So it was a little trek up to the city. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A widow in these days was miserable. It was, it was a life of misery because a widow depended on her husband, a woman depended on her husband or her sons for her whole living. There was no social security. There was no safety net. There was no nothing. If you were a widow in Israel, really in any part of the world, and still today, widows in Africa, when they um, lose their husbands, many times the husband's family comes and kicks them out of the house, lets them take nothing. They have no rights of property. They're completely cast off. We met some of them in Goma on the backside of one hospital. Widows who had been raped by the rebel soldiers and were living in the backside of the hospital with children, completely kicked out of their own homes. Without a husband, without her only son, this woman's future was absolutely bleak and hopeless. And Jesus intersects with her right at this moment of pain. And a large crowd from the town was with her. You know, when we see a funeral, we stop over on the side of the road and we wait respectfully. Jews didn't do that. When they saw a funeral coming, they would jump in. They would walk with them because that's a good work. It's something that you would do to honor the family. And so there are a large crowd going out the city gate, mourning, and Jesus celebrating crowd coming through the gate, entering. And there they meet. You see the picture? Morning crowd, celebrating crowd, right at the gate, right at the right moment. Jewish funerals were usually at dusk. They didn't wait very long to um, bury a body. Women, mourners, professional mourners, paid mourners, were usually at the front wailing and crying. There were lutes and flutes and lyres playing sad music. Um, people would join into that celebration. And there they collide at the city gate. Verse 13, when the Lord, this is the first time Luke uses the word Lord, referring to Jesus. When the Lord, so important in this story to know that this is the Lord. Jesus has been positioning himself all along in Luke chapter 7 to align himself with Elijah and Elisha and the great prophets. Theologically speaking, this chapter is really about showing him to be this Lord, not just a prophet, but beyond the prophets, but just in the same kind of tone and tenor as Elijah and Elisha. In fact, we'll see that in a moment. When the Lord saw her, here it is, He's about to be splank needs omide. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. This is splank non, the word I talked about before. His heart went out to her. He was deeply moved with compassion. And he said what all men do when women cry. Say it with me. Don't cry. Don't cry. 
cry. Please stop, 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 stop. Don't cry. You know, I just want to stop a minute here and just talk about Jesus the man. You know, he was a guy. But he's about to raise her son from the dead. He doesn't have to stop and say, don't cry. In the flip of a monkey's tail, her tears are going to dry up anyway because her son's going to jump off this death platform and jump into her arms practically. But do you know that wherever you are today in your pain, Jesus stops long enough to look you in the eye in your heart of hearts by his spirit and addresses your pain and your tears. He's not in the business of ministry. Jesus is in the people. Jesus is in the relationship. Jesus is in the eye-to-eye, look at you and tell you, don't cry. That's the kind of savior that we have. Verse 14, it says, Then he went up, Jesus, and touched the bier. Your translation may say coffin. There were no coffins in that day. It was like a woven or wooden platform where the body would have been wrapped in linen, the face uncovered. They're carrying it on a platform in the open. So Jesus touched it. The word touch is to forcibly lay hold of it. So he's not just, you know, You know, he's not touching it like that. He's holding it so the procession will stop because they're going to truck through the city gate. So he grabs hold of that funeral platform to stop them. This makes Jesus unclean, according to the Old Testament. So put yourself in the hands of the mourning crowd. They know what they're doing. They've got a thing to do. There are burial caves about 10 miles down the road on either side. That's where they're going. Probably the, the lady's husband is buried there somewhere. So they're probably just walking. They know exactly what they're doing. Jesus intercepts them at that moment. And when he touches that thing, all of them know he's unclean. That would stop you dead in your tracks if you were a Jew. There's a rabbi with a bunch of people following him and he's... He doesn't, he know, he should know not to touch that. Rabbi, don't touch that. Imagine the awkward silence when Jesus holds that funeral platform and stops the procession, making himself unclean. (laughs) I love putting myself in the story of scripture. When you think what their faces, think of the awkward silence. Uh... Uh, (laughs) this isn't going the way we thought it would go. What's Jesus going to do? He touched the beer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. They stopped. And Jesus said, young man, the Greek word here means he was probably between 20 and 40 years old, so he's not a little boy. He's an actual providing young man for his mother. I say to you, get up. Okay, so now the crowd. So they're still holding it. Like they're like, Jesus stopped them. The awkward silence. And he says, young man, get up. And they're like, okay, first this nut is touching the coffin. And then the second, now he's talking to the dead guy. This is a little crazy. 
And they're all just, you know how when you're, you're awkward, you just kind of look forward and put your eyes down, you know, like, and I want to look in his eyes because I don't want to tell him anything, right? What's the widow thinking? Don't you think she's prayed? We don't know if the boy was sick or if he died suddenly, but hasn't she been asking God to heal him, asking God for him not to die? And then he dies. And she has nothing. And Jesus shows up. I love this part. Then the dead man sat up and began to talk. What were his first words? Hey, everybody, what are you doing? Oh, my gosh. What, what am I doing here? What did he say? That'd be a great discussion around your table. What in the word were his first words? Wow. Hey, you're all looking pretty grave. I don't know what's going on. What? And then Jesus does what Elisha and Elijah did when they raised sons of widows. These are the exact words from the Old Testament. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus helps him down because he's being lifted. Jesus helps him down off that thing or they put him down and Jesus helps him get up. And Can you see him putting the man's hand and the mom's hand together? Don't cry. Don't cry. Now she's really crying because she's so happy. This is um, from 1 Kings 17.23 if you wanted to mark that down. That's exactly what Elijah says. Verse 16, they were filled with awe, literally fear. The word is fear. They were filled with fear, this holy, righteous, amazing awe. And praise God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. These miraculous signs the Jews knew were an evidence of the presence of God among his people. They didn't happen every day. So when they happened, the Jews were knowledgeable that something, some activity of the Lord was happening in their midst. Verse 17 ends this episode. This news of Jesus as a great prophet about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So people had a story to tell. And let me tell you, they told it. Imagine what you would say had you seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. Scholars point out these are resuscitations because the people are resuscitated back to life. They eventually do die again. Um, a resurrection is when you're resurrected to life and never die. It's quite a miracle. So here's this nameless widow from a tiny backwater town called Nain. And what in the world does this have anything to do with us having it happen centuries ago? And here we are in the 21st century. How do we read these things and get something from it? What do we take away from these stories of Jesus? Well, I think there's an outward application and an inward application of this story. Let me give you the inward application first. Because there are sisters here in this room and in the sound of my voice, wherever this goes, who are grieving and have lost husbands or sons or daughters or loved ones. Your mom, I lost my mom three years ago about this time. So this is always a tough time for me about this season as I remember her and I grieve her loss to this day. We understand what it's like to lose someone and to be at an extremity. Some of you have lost houses or jobs. You've had a divorce that seems like a death, a living death. 
people in this room, women in this room, you, my sisters, you understand what this is like to be at this place of extremity. And this is what I want to say to you. Jesus sees you in your pain and is moving with compassion to act on your behalf. You may not see it. You may not feel it, but I'm telling you, this is who he is, that Jesus sees you in your pain and he is already moving with compassion to act on your behalf because of the splanchnon that he carries in him. This deep and abiding compassion for people, for you. Do you know if Jesus walked into this room, you could peel off your name tag because he knows every single person in this room, first, middle, last name. He knows how many hairs are on the comb in your purse. (laughs) He knows you so intimately better than you know yourself. He sees you in your pain. What you can take from the story is wherever you are in that procession of mourning, going outside the city to fix that, to bury it, And to grieve it, Jesus sees you and meets you in your pain. And he sees it and he's already moving on your behalf to act for you. Believe it. It's who he is. Then there's an outward application. Jesus in you. (laughs) Jesus in you sees people in their pain and wants to move compassionately through you to act on their behalf. Do you see the difference? Jesus meets you in your pain and is moving compassionately to act on your behalf, and now Jesus in you, Jesus is in you. The same guy that's in this story lives in you. You don't have to work up compassion. You don't have to just kind of orchestrate splanchnon. You don't. You don't have to pretend You can actually ask God for what he already can do in your heart because it's his compassion that we move in. The splanchnon comes from him, from his spirit, from who he is in you and wants to be through you. Splanchnon to you, splanchnon through you. Do you understand? Splanchnon to you so that Splanchnon can flow through you. Compassion to you, compassion through you. So important to get those in the right order. Jesus puts his compassion as he shows it to you, in you, by his spirit. And then when he asks it from you, it's there to give. It's so beautiful. So how do we avail ourselves of this? I have three cries of your heart. I want you to write these down. Just three cries of your heart. These are short prayers you can pray that follow just a little bit of a process. Let me show them to you. The first cry of your heart, Jesus, I offer you my eyes. Remember, Splanknon is about seeing, first seeing. Jesus, I offer you my eyes, Open them to see people at the margins. Jesus, I offer you my eyes. Open them so that I can see people at the margins, the people I normally don't see, the people that are outside my usual circle. 
Jesus, I give you my eyes. Open them so that I can see people. Not just watch people, see people. Lord, I give you my eyes. Open them so that I can see people at the margins. I have a friend named John. He never would stop for a homeless person on the side of the road. Never, ever. He would roll up his window. He'd turn the other way. He'd have all kinds of judgmental thoughts about them. And then John started praying prayers like this. And today John is um, almost a full-time volunteer with Metro Relief that serves the homeless. He makes soup. The reason he makes soup is because if you make sandwiches, they can take them and run. Soup, you can't run with a hot bowl of soup. You have to sit and blow on it and have someone just chat with you. Jesus splanknon in John, through John, to the homeless people that he wants shut out. Second cry, Jesus, I offer you my heart. Jesus, I offer you my heart. Move me with deep compassion for those people I see. Here's my eyes. I give you my eyes. Open them so I can see people at the margins. And Lord, I give you my heart. Would you move me with deep compassion, with splanknon? Give me splanknon. Splanknon needs on my me. Would you just do that in me? Give me that compassion. Birth in me that compassion that you have in the story for that widow when you saw her and your heart went out to her. Lord, that's what I want. Would you do that in me? Open my eyes. I offer my eyes. I offer my heart. Move me with deep compassion for them. My friend Usha lives in Coimbatore, India. She raised three children of her own. And then one day as she was doing her normal women's ministry, she found a little baby girl um, that was buried. Someone came to her at night and said, because female infanticide is um, still happening in India, boy, girl, uh, boy babies are favored over girl babies. She was um, taken to a burial site of a recently ba- buried baby girl, rescued that baby girl. That little girl is 17 years old today. And she has 21 other little sisters that Usha and her husband Merle have rescued from that same shallow type grave. And after raising three of her own, she has 22 teenage girls. (laughs) Because she said, Jesus, I give you my heart. Move me with splanknon to the people you let me see. The third cry, Jesus, I offer my hands and feet. Jesus, I offer my hands and feet. Direct me to act on behalf of their need. Jesus, I give you my hands and my feet. I offer them to you. Direct me to act on behalf of their need. It's really starting to sound like the BLESS initiative, doesn't it? Hand in hand with that. I was recently splanknidzomide. I'm going to put some pictures up on, and this is where I'll close. A three-year-old from a remote jungle village about 10 hours away from the nearest city named Michelle had tetralogy of fallow, 
which is four congenital heart problems that needed to be fixed. And nowhere in Bolivia could she find that. And so through Samaritan's Purse and Heart Gift and Bentry as a host family, little Michelle came to us in May for six weeks. That six weeks turned into uh, four months that our church hosted. Little Michelle, her mother Monica, and Gisela, the translator. And I turn the slide, that's Gisela, the translator. She was with us for four months. Four host homes, four months, three surgeries, 37 days in ICU. And during that time, Michelle turned four years old. Uh, we just sent them back to Bolivia in August. And um, next slide, there, that slide. There's Monica, her mom. I am baptizing her mom. Her mom came to Christ during that time. We got to baptize her in the pool at one of the host homes. That's Gisela, the translator, little Michelle, uh, Monica, her mom, and me. It was not easy, but it is so worth it. Splank Nidzomai is not easy, but it's so worth it. Imagine the impact of Jesus' compassion through every person in this room. Every woman in this room has the capacity through the life of Jesus in you to move with that compassion flowing through you to others at the margins who need Jesus desires to move through you to see their pain, to pour out the compassion that he gives you, and to practically act on their behalf through your hands and feet. Imagine the impact we can have as we move out with Jesus' compassion. Father, thank you for these, my sisters, and I pray, Lord, that we would Allow you to minister to us in our pain with your compassion. And then offer ourselves, our eyes, our hearts, our hands and feet for you to show compassion through us, not only to us, but through us so that we might impact the ones that you have for us. It's always worth it. And we love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.